Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So for those of you who might be listening to this show out of order or haven't heard me talk about this show before, I started having an interest in alchemy because I like the history of science primarily. I was good at chemistry in high school and kind of out of the sciences, I was actually only good at chemistry in high school. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, alchemy is interesting. And then living in Prague, giving ghost tours of places that alchemists actually used or even influenced in many, many ways. But alchemy also has a side that I just couldn't get. I had to kind of take notes and write stuff down to make sense of it. And these notes, it kind of is what turned into first the website and then this show and is even now slowly turning into books. And that was the part of alchemy that was just as interesting, even if it was harder for me to understand, like the things like Kabbalah and Hermeticism, Neoplatonism, astrology. But it just didn't assemble in my brain the way that other stuff does, like that I read, like the more history of science aspects. Well, today is about one of those non-science parts of alchemy, kind of to give it some balance. And one of the very first people I actually read about specifically because I kept coming across him when reading about alchemists none other than Pico della Mirandola. He's been in my outline list since the very beginning. He's, I'm finally finished it, so this, this show's about two years in the making is another way to look at it. He's one of the very first people I read about when um, I decided to you know, really tackle alchemy as a subject. And he's one of those guys that just kind of influenced just about everyone that came after him. And therefore, to understand why some alchemists believed what they did, we need to talk about someone who's been on my mind since the beginning, but actually isn't an alchemist at all. So to give you some of the background, he died in 1494, and he was actually in the Medici court in Italy, specifically Marsilio Ficino. And that duo is very important for this whole show. When we talked about Neoplatonism before, and I even went to Munich to interview Peter Adamson from the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast to talk about Neoplatonism. But Ficino and Mirandola changed a lot of that. So they kind of reinvented Neoplatonism in the Renaissance. And like many things in the Renaissance, they took something classical, like art, architecture, and they brought it back. But they also made it their own. And philosophy was obviously no different than than all the art and architecture that went with it. Um, So Kabbalah, especially Christian Kabbalah, will come back in the Renaissance and then sort of take hold in a way. And also Neoplatonism will get a sort of new definition and take root again. Renaissance Platonism, according to Francis Yates, is a mix of genuine Platonic teachings with Neoplatonism a la 4th century Alexandria, of course, but also a sort of revival in other antique occult beliefs. It's Miradola who will influence Cornelius Agrippa, and therefore the theory of spell and magic as we know it today. 
some listeners, if you remember, may have been asking for this because, well, I might, you know, Travis and I were actually uh, trying to do a show on Agrippa at one point, right? So uh, some of these theories and magic made their way back into alchemy. But if you're one of those listeners, please pay attention. Here we go. Both Ficino and Maradola studied hermetic writings, which can lay a sort of groundwork for the fitting in of all sorts of divination. We've mentioned Kabbalah. Well, one of one of Travis's all-time favorites, of course, uh, people that he'd like to talk about was Ramon Lul, who applied the Kabbalah, which we'll define in one moment, to the to the Latin alphabet. Pico della Mandola, like Lul, thought that the Kabbalah could be used to prove Christianity. Basically, Jesus equals name of the Messiah, therefore, and so on. The details of the theory are interesting, but you know, go away, way down to the weird rabbit hole. We'll see more of this as we go on. So again, you know, if you're listening out of order, so we've done a show on the Kabbalah. Um, the Kabbalah is basically uh, you you take the original Hebrew Old Testament, or even just the books of Moses, depending on who you ask, and they believe that because it is the divine word of God. There's many, many levels to it. There is the nominal level, as in what it actually says black on white. And then there might be the kind of interpretations, which we get from the Talmud, you know, like rabbis interpreting what it says and and kind of applying that to everyday rules, let's say. But then there's five other layers. and, And when you go down this rabbit hole, you start to see like, okay, well, let's assign each letter of the of the Hebrew alphabet a number. And then, you know, per word or per phrase, we can add those numbers up. And those numbers have mythical meanings. We've talked about this before. Like every letter can have several meanings, um, whether the number is round or uh, whether the number is even means something. Certain numbers like seven. You know, anyways, you, you see where I'm going with this. Okay, so that that's Kabbalah. And to, to get these hidden meanings out of the Bible... That way you get closer and closer to the truth. And, you know, the that's the whole esoteric nature of it, that um, maybe the Bible was written in a way that not everyone can know everything because maybe it's dangerous or too powerful. But these guys obviously think they can handle it, so they tried to get down to the mystery. But when we talked about Ramon Lul, for instance, he applied it to the Latin alphabet, for let's say, and... Um, and then we have the, you know, whatever, the divinities of God and the seven natures and all these different things. And again, it, you'll go listen to the Kabbalah episode if this is all new to you. But you know, what we're talking about now is like Ramon Lul said, look, the, the word Iesu, I-E-S-U, you know, you take those numbers and you add them up. Basically, and then if you take the word Messiah in Hebrew, you know, you add those numbers up. Oh, wait, look, it's the same thing, which means Jesus equals Messiah. Okay, that's that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, and I'm not doing it justice right now. But that was the idea. So now, what if you did the same thing to Latin? What if you gave all of the Latin characters a number and, you know, did that sort of thing? Why would it only work for Hebrew, right? So this is this is kind of what we're getting to. I mean, if, if you really want to know, so, you know, you have Iesu equals the tetragrammaton, like Yahweh. And now for this, you have the four Hebrew letters, I-E-S-U, with, it, it has a medieval S sin inserted. And, you know, because otherwise it'd kind of be all vowels, except for that S. And that is somehow the word made flesh, which the S makes the word audible. Uh, yeah, anyway, so you're kind of getting the picture here. It goes way deep down some rabbit holes. And, you know, you've been asking for it, so here it is. This was a theory before Mirandola, 
and then expanded by him and also Reuchlin. I have a book on Reuchlin, so we, we might do a show, but it just kind of depends on how, you know, how close to alchemy it's related. And to make the influence of this man even clearer, for those of you that like the kind of eccentric side of John Dee, the superstition, the spiritual cleaning, talking to angels and Enochian, I like Dee because he was born into one world, that world of angels and demons, and he died in the world of Kepler and the beginning of reason, and, and let's call it true science. So Mirandola created that fun world that John Dee would later be born in. That's a good way to look at it. He's part of that earlier Renaissance tradition of, you know, buying into these angels and demons and even some of the superstition, and it's just steeped in magic and, you know, all these weird esoteric things. So let's start this one off with a quote. I come now to declare that which I have beheld of this prodigy. Without veil or obscurity, one of my friends who is still living has made gold and silver over 60 times in my presence. I have seen it performed in various manners, but the cost of producing the silver with the metallic water exceeded the value of the produce. This is from Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, the Auro Libri Tres, which was published in Venice, 1586. So, if just for the fact that he claims to have been an eyewitness of, you know, actual alchemical transmutation over 60 times, there you go. Let's we'll call it. We'll call it good. And he has a place on the History of Alchemy podcast. I thought it's interesting to note that he did not say that they got more out of it than they put in. So the the cost of the raw materials actually always was more than the silver they produced, which I thought was kind of interesting. Another thing that makes him interesting for this show is in his philosophy, he combined aspects of Platonism, Neoplatonism, Aristotelianism, Hermeticism, and Kabbalah, which covers most aspects that we've co covered philosophically on this show so far. So Count Giovanni Pico della Mirandola was born in 1463 and died in 1494. He was an Italian Renaissance philosopher, as we mentioned before, and he's famed for the events in 1486, which at the age of a very young age of 23, he proposed to defend 900 theses on religion, philosophy, natural philosophy, and magic against all comers, for which he wrote his famous Oration on the Dignity of Man, which has been called the Manifesto of the Renaissance, and a key text to the Renaissance humanism, which is meant to have been called the Hermetic Re Reformation. So, again, when we do these shows, we all like to get, dig deeper, especially when we do some biographies that we talk about in, in the history of alchemy. And to give a little bit more insight to him, Giovanni was born in Mirandola, thus his name, near, near Modena, the youngest son of Francisco I, Lord of Mirandola, and the Count of Concordia. The family had long dwelt in the castle of Mirandola, which is the Duchy of, of Modena, and had become independent in the 14th century and received in 1414 from the Holy Roman Emperor Sigmund the, the Fife of Concordia. Mirandola was a small autonomous county near the Duchy in Emilia, near Ferrara. Pica della, della Mandola was closely related to Savorza, which is part of the Gonzaga and estate dynasties, and the Giovanni siblings wed in the, in the scions of the heredity rulers of Corsica, Ferrara, Bologna, and Forilli. Yeah, so basically the point is, I guess, he was part of nobility and well intermarried in the region and that kind of thing. Giovanni's maternal family was also kind of distinguished in the arts and scholarship of the Italian Renaissance. So really, literally, a Renaissance man, right? Now, if you noted that he only lived to be 31 years old, so I think what's important to 
point out here is that he was, even as a child, it was kind of written that he had this amazing memory. And then, of course, he went through the, through the basically uh, standard education of the nobility of, you know, he was schooled in Latin, possibly Greek at a very early age. And then in 1477, went on to Bologna to study canon law. And then at the death of his mother, some three years later, he renounced canon law and began to study philosophy at the University of Ferrara. And then he continues that study at the University of Padua, which at that time was a major center of Aristotelianism in Italy. So we start to see some of his influences. Then we add on that he studied Hebrew and Arabic, which obviously is critical if you're going to you know, pretend to, to do anything to do with uh, Kabbalah. And he even read Aramaic manuscripts. Pico had the Judaic manuscripts translated from Hebrew into Latin, and he would also do a number uh, of these for, for many years to come. Pico also wrote sonnets in Latin and Italian, which he destroyed at the end of his life. Basically unfortunate for the rest of us, as, but, uh, uh, but life goes on, right? So in 1485, he traveled to the University of Paris, where most important center of the whole world of Europe, first classic philosophy and theology was housed, and a hotbed of secular Averroism. It was probably in Paris that Giovanni began his 900 theses and conceived the idea of defending them in a public debate. And remember, this is at the doorstep of humanism during the Renaissance. So he had basically the, the bully pulpit. Defending that sort of theses at that time does not seem like a good idea to me. <laughs> but, but call that foreshadowing? <laughs> Anyways. So in his life, we have a couple of really big events that really influenced him. One was... Uh, he returned for a while to Florence in 1484 and met Lorenzo de' Medici and also Marsilio Ficino. And on an astrologically important day, Ficino had chosen to publish his translation of the works of Plato from Greek into Latin under Lorenzo's patronage, which the Medicis are obviously very well known for. And Pico, it seems that he really charmed both of these men. And Ficino might also, I, I think I might have said it already, but he, he's also on my list of potential people to talk about. But they, they had these continuing philosophical differences, but even then they, were, they, they became pretty close. And also it was kind of, because I mentioned astrology, it, he was, Ficino was actually convinced that because of their Saturnine affinity that they had this divine provenance that the, the date of his arrival in November of 1484 was not an accident. And until his death in 1492, Lorenzo supported and protected B Pico. And without Lorenzo's support, it's actually pretty doubtful that Pico would have survived even the 10 more years that he did. Uh, so remember what I said about defending those sort of the the theses is a bad idea? It definitely was. And soon after his stay in Florence, Pico was traveling on his way to Rome, where he intended to publish his 900 theses and prepare for a congress of scholars from all over Europe to debate them. But he, he stopped in Arezzo, and he kind of became embroiled in a love affair. And unfortunately, this was the wife of one of Lorenzo de' Medici's cousins. And that also actually almost cost him his life. Giovanni attempted to run off the woman, but was caught wounded and then thrown into prison by her husband, but he was released only because Lorenzo de' Medici himself kind of intervened and, and you know, spoke on his behalf. So it's, it's, I think it's kind of interesting to note that, you know, people like Lorenzo de' Medici were felt very loyal to Pico and actually went above one of his cousin's heads to release him from jail. I mean, that, that is saying something. 
And then while he was recovering from, recovering from his injuries, he wrote a couple of really interesting works on like Chaldean books, as, as he calls them, like Esdras, Zoroaster, Melchior, um, books about oracles and the Magi, which contain a kind of brief and perhaps somewhat weird and boring interpretation of Chaldean philosophy. Um, and of course, in the Pico della Mirandola style, it's steeped in mystery and, and all kinds of um, fun theories. And it was also here that he was introduced to this mystical Hebrew Kabbalah, which obviously instantly fascinated him right from the get-go, as did also the late classical Hermetic writers, which we've talked about, Hermes Trismegistus, um, who we did a whole show on. And in his time, this is important to note, we've said this before, but the Kabbalah and the Hermetica were thought in Pico's time to be as ancient as the Old Testament. We've mentioned before that people made connections between Hermes Trismegistus and Moses. Now we know today that's not true. The Kabbalah was actually pretty recent in his time, and Hermetica was probably no earlier than you know the third century AD from Ptolemaic Egypt. But, you know, they, they just saw Egypt and thought, oh, it's Old Testament age sort of thing. So basically, I mean, for that kind of reason, he just accepted them instantly as a spiritual authority, let's say. And, you know, stood behind them as if they were scripture, literally. Yeah, and, and Pete, you briefly mentioned the kind of scholastic approach. And this is, you know, this was really a kind of a medieval philosophy. This was really a medieval philosophical tool um, to kind of get to the truth of something. But he would, you know, take that and and really run with it in the sense that so he has these what he considers to be, you know, as holy or as um, as old as the Bible, let's say, and he would use that sort of argument to really attack something from a different angle. We kind of said before on the show that the scholastic attitude or the scholastic approach is sort of like playing devil's advocate. Even if you believe one side, you also argue for the other side, which, you know, invites the kind of a straw man fallacy and all that sort of thing, which is, you know, there's many reasons why it fell out of favor. Um, but it is interesting. So he did, he, did, did, he did the same thing with these hermetic texts and also the Kabbalah. He did base his ideas chiefly on Plato. So did Marsilio Ficino but also retained a deep respect for Aristotle, so which is kind of interesting. And he even defended and believed all these medieval and Islamic commentators like Averroes, Avicenna, um, who commented on Aristotle. And this is you know, just part of that um, tradition of the old Greek text being translated to Hebrew and Arabic first and then making their way back to Latin in the Renaissance. So by the time Pico de la Vandola got his fingers on it, it had a long tradition with all sorts of Islamic commentators and, and, and you know, there was a, a really rich tradition there. Now he also believed that every educated person should study the Hebrew and Talmudic sources, also the, uh, also the Hermetica, uh, remember, again, you, we, you know, people tied Hermes Trismegistus to Moses in that time. So really, he was saying this is kind of one and the same. It's all the same source. So he, you know, so yeah, everyone should study the Hebrew and Talmudic sources, but also the Hermetica, um, you know, which is, to his point of view, it's the same view as the Old Testament in different words of God. So these are all divinely inspired books. He finished his oration on the dignity of man to accompany his 900 theses and traveled to Rome to continue his plan to defend them. He had them published in December of 1486 
and uh, then offered to pay the expenses of any scholars who came to Rome to debate him publicly. That's actually pretty interesting, isn't it? All right, to yeah. get to get what you just talked about, Travis, to have that other side of the argument that he wanted to admit that he would actually pay them to come. In February 1487, Pope Innocent VIII halted the proposed debate and established a commission to review the orthodoxy of these theses. Although Pico answered the charges against him, 13 of these theses were condemned. Pico agreed in writing to retract them, but he did not change his mind about the validity and proceeded to write the Apologia, and thus defending them, dedicated this to Lorenzo. When the Pope was apprised of the situation of the manuscript, he set up an inquisitorial tribunal, forcing Pico to renounce the, uh, the Apologia as well as, as which he had agreed to do. Nevertheless, the Pope declared that this thesis unorthodox, calling, him, calling them in part heretical in the part of the flower of heresy. Several are scandalous and offend to the pious ears. Most do not but reproduce the errors of pagan philosophers. Others are capable of inflaming the impertinence of the Jews. A number of them, finally under the pretext of natural philosophy, favor arts that are enemies to the Catholic faith and to the human race. That's pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> All right? So if that's not a slap in the face that you did something wrong by the eyes of the church, I don't know what would be. One of Pico's detractors maintained that the Kabbalah was the name of the impious writer against Jesus Christ himself. Mm -hmm. Pico fled to France in 1488, you can assume why, where he was arrested by Philip II of Savoy at the demand of the papal nuncios and imprisoned at Vincennes. Through the intercession of, the se of several Italian princes, all instigated by Lorenzo himself de' Medici, King Charles VIII had him, had him released, and the Pope was persuaded to allow Pico to move to Florence and to live under Lorenzo's protection. But he was not cleared of the papal censures and restrictions until 1493, after the ascension of Alexander VI, Rigo Borgia, to the papacy. And we know that Borgia name, don't we? Yeah, if you guys watched the, the Borgias, the show, the Borgias, yeah, so obviously he didn't have much of a problem with Pico della Mirandola. Um, yeah, so um, after his death, actually, um, he there was another treatise published, basically a treatise against predictive astrology, which was not published until after he passed. Pico acidly condemned the ter deterministic practices of the astrologers of his day. And this is kind of important to note because um, this, this is basically saying he didn't believe in fate or that, that, that the fate was written in the stars, which is interesting because it seems like everything else he's doing, he would be, would jive with divination, more or less, right? Like Kabbalah is divination um, in some ways. I don't want to put it like that. That's simplistic, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. So again, you don't have, it's not completely one-sided. He did speak out, speak out against some of these things. Um, in any case, after the death of Lorenzo de' Medici in 1492, which again, that was his main protect, protector, Pico moved to Ferrara, and he continued to visit Florence after that. And Florence, after the, after the death of Lorenzo de' Medici, was very politically unstable. And with the death of the Medici was also a kind of reactionary opposition to this Renaissance expansion and style, let's say. And, you know, eventually the Medici family were also expelled from Florence, which sadly to all art historians, this is probably very well known, there was a, a kind of a mass destruction of books and paintings and that sort of thing. 
However, Pico, again, he fostered this loyalty with the people he met and became a follower of Savonarola, who actually, you know, led this anti-Renaissance movement. And he kind of determined to become a monk. And he then kind of went a different route. He, you know, kind of took a left turn and dismissed his former interest in, interest in Egyptian and Chaldean text, destroyed his own poetry, like you already mentioned, and gave away his fortune. Now here's the weird part. So you would think he definitely was burned at the stake, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously, but no, he was kind of poisoned under very mysterious circumstances in 1494 at the age of around 31. And uh, together with his close friend Angelo Poliziano, and there's so there's again all these conspiracy theories and whatnot, but um, there's a rumor that his own secretary had poisoned him because Pico had become too close to Savonarola, um, who was the enemy in some ways. And he was he was interned at San Marco. Yeah, and Sav Savonarola delivered the funeral the funeral oration. So you know, just all around interesting guy that he wasn't burned at the stake. Surprise! And, um, you know, one of his protector's enemies actually delivered the, I mean, it's just, it's just a great story. Now, in 2007, the bodies of Poliziano and Pico della Mirandola were exhumed from St. Mark's Basilica in Florence. Scientists under the supervision of Giorgio Gruppioni, a professor of anthro anthropology from Bologna, is currently, as as at the time of this recording, or maybe I'm behind on the news, um, was using uh, testing techniques to study the men's lives and establish the cause of their deaths. So like I said, you know, to kind of solve some of these conspiracy theories to figure out what really happened. So I don't know if it's out already or not, but there's a TV document documentary being made about this. So either maybe it just released now, but in any case, um, this, this is a pretty timely episode, I'd say, even though it was two years in the making. It was recently announced that these forensic tests showed that both Pico and his buddy likely died of arsenic poisoning, probably at the order of Lorenzo's successor, Piero de' Medici. That is the, the current theory, if you will. So, so, Travis, this would make sense if they did find some arsenic in, in any kind of body tissue that was left over, mostly hair or those type of things that may, may sustain over uh, the decay over, over centuries. Uh, so that, that would be something a forensic pathologist probably would find, and, and that seems like a, uh, an actually pretty likely way of going. Like Napoleon. Like Napoleon, exactly. Pico's Heptoplus, a mystical allegorical uh, exposition on the creation according to the seven biblical senses, elaborates on this idea that different religions and traditions describe the same God. De Inte et Uno has explanations of several passages in Moses, Plato, and Aristotle. He wrote in Italian in an imitation of Plato's Symposium. His letters are important for the history of contemporary thought, of course, and many editions of his entire works in the 16th century sufficiently prove his influence. Not to mention, like, everybody we've ever talked about on this show after 1500, pretty much. Um, Henning Brandt, distilling his own urine, that's sympathetic magic. Uh, so again, his theories, and then especially through Agrippa, Cornelius Agrippa, come back to alchemy, which is uh, why I, I wanted to talk about this guy, so that I can just say, hey, remember that episode on Pico della Mirandola? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, anything, so exactly, he created the world, is one way to put it, that John Dee was born in. Uh, 
And by the time of John Dee's death, we have, um, you know, that's the world that Isaac Newton was born in. Okay, so we we definitely have a transition from from one to one kind of stage to the next, and. Um, I think that's important to pull, point out because alchemy existed throughout all of this, but if you want to understand some of the alchemical recipes from John Dee's day, you're going to need to understand where some of this comes from, and that's why it will be important to do Cornelis Agrippa at some point and talk about magic much more directly, and I, I know a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of listeners have been asking for that, so don't worry, it is coming, because that is important, and you can't have the history of science without all this stuff, too. And he's actually such an influence that even you know, we like to talk about kind of modern works of fiction and that sort of thing, where they come up in. So in James Joyce's Ulysses, there's a very um, Mirandola-like character um, in, in that work, for instance. There's a passing reference in by H.P. Lovecraft, which... We'll always get a mention on this show uh, in the story the case of charles dexter ward and that in that work he's kind of this source of a fearsome incantation um, used by these evil entities as some sort of evocation which actually for the curious the spell actually comes from cornelis agrippa but again you know uh, it's okay della mirandola was an influence on agrippa so i'll let it slide then we have even like psychologist otto rank who was a sort of a rebellious disciple of Sigmund Freud had, you know, chose a substantial excerpt from the Oration of the Dignity of Man as the motto for his book, Art and Artist, Creative Urge and Personality Development. And in fact, his, his quote is there, I created thee as a being neither celestial nor earthly, so that thou shalt be thy own free molder and overcomer. Again, kind of going against what is above, so below, like Hermeticism teach, teaches and saying that eh, your fate isn't re written in the stars. You can mold your own um, future and you can overcome your own life, your own fate, basically. Umber um, Umberto Eco's novel, The Folk Cult's Pendulum, he gets some mention, even like among the Templars. And there's a quote that, you know, that the enigma of the Templars was a quote, mistake of Pica della Mirandola, basically because of a spelling mistake. Remember, we're talking about Kabbalah, where spelling mistakes would be really detrimental. So there's, um, you know, a difference between Israelites and Ismailites. That would be a very bad typo if you're putting a number value to each letter and trying to figure out something, which that's, that's, that's just neat. That's a neat idea. Like, oh, the Kabbalist has it wrong because of a typo. Yeah, sure. And then any sort of works where Lorenzo de' Medici is in there, you might get a mention of Pico della Mirandola. Um, even in the Borgias, I wonder if he shows up. I'm not all cut up with that show, but but yeah, there's there's many many other references here. So again, not an alchemist himself, but a supposed eyewitness of alchemy. So if if you want to take his word for it, then um, he has seen silver transmutated. I do not take his word for it, by the way, for the record. But, but there you have it. I think this is a really interesting character, and I'm glad we finally put this piece of the puzzle together and, and uh, brought this to the show. So now I finally have the new Umbrella website up, podcastnik.com. That's podcastnik.com, where you can just, it's just all linked together now. The Bohemian, webs, uh, the Bohemian podcast and all the Bohemian videos we did, we just did an underground tour 
of an alchemist lab in Prague, which you might be very interested in. So that is on the YouTube channel, which you can find under podcastnik.com, um, or just just you know look for the Bohemian YouTube channel. But also the History of Germany podcast is all all that stuff's there now, and also the the new project, the Secret Cabinet, is coming together, which I translate from the original German and and has really really neat topics that I'm sure the History of Alchemy listeners will just love. So in any case, I hope you enjoyed that one, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, and have a good evening. <laughs>